Well, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition live of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when anything can happen. And tonight we are going back to Mars. Because a year ago, literally a year ago and one day, the NASA Perseverance rover, this extraordinary golf cart-sized mini car with incredible instrumentation, nuclear-powered, 20-plus cameras, all of them in color, well, except for one or two. There's a, there's a sky cam that looks up that's in black and white, but uh, the has cams and the nav cams and the mass cams... Uh, and the Watson camera, you know, that's the uh, Sherlock companion, named after, of course, uh, an acronym that is supposed to read Sherlock Holmes. The Watson camera, really good camera, excellent camera on the spacecraft. Uh, they're all color, as opposed to the ones on Curiosity, which actually, uh, uh, a lot of those cameras, the 17 cameras on Curiosity, uh, a lot of those were black and white. Well, they upgraded for Perseverance, and a year ago, plus one night, uh, last year in 2021, the Perseverance rover landed at a place on Mars called Jezero Crater. And thus began, as you'll hear tonight, an extraordinary tale. Because there's kind of like two tracks to this story. There's the track that NASA's been following, the carefully monitored, carefully narrated narrative that they've been giving us for the last year. And then there's all the really cool stuff. I mean, the Perseverance spacecraft, Percy to his friends, um, has been giving us some extraordinary confirmations of models that we've been pursuing for, oh, something like uh, 30 or 40 years. Remember, the Enterprise mission model is that there used to be a succession of ancient human civilizations on the planet Mars. And at some point in the not-too-distant past, uh, Mars became literally, finally, terminably uninhabitable. And the last few refugees came to the only place in the solar system that they could, which was here. And henceforth, uh, human civilization living here on Earth has been extraordinarily complicated, bifurcated, dissected, fragmented, and um, all the other, you know, separate words you might want to use. And that's the status of the world tonight. As we are poised on the brink of what could be in the worst-case scenario, uh, a major land war in Europe, which, of course, has not happened since 1939, since the beginning of World War II. So it's kind of appropriate that tonight we're going to delve into the history of the planet uh, Mars, the god of war, which, of course, in terms of our research, uh, is actually a relatively recent transformation of a planet that we have found to be, and we're going to talk about this at some length tonight, 
a planet of artwork, of the arts, of extraordinary sculptures, of a people who scribbled and sculpted and drew on almost everything in one of those post-ancient civilization cultures which apparently has dominated the last uh, uh, several hundred thousand years on the Red Planet. Anyway, all of that to be discussed in some detail with our uh, the members of our uh, Enterprise Mission imaging team. We have two of the most intensive researchers with us tonight, Ron Gerbron, our resident generalist, and Andrew Curry, who is kind of our resident artist, and he has done an amazing job of putting artwork to the imagery so that even those who have difficulty seeing geometry amid the noise can easily see what is there in the Perseverance imagery. Before we get to that, however, uh, I want to take a, a few minutes here and kind of talk about some news items. If you go to the other side of midnight, which is our URL, if you're new to the show, I will lead you through a very easy way to get to where we're going to be showing images tonight. You go to the other side of midnight.com, that's our URL, and you look for tonight's banner, which says, Percy, one year after, a few of its most amazing Martian confirmations. You click on that banner that takes you to tonight's guest page. Under the guest page, you'll see fast links to items. Uh, my name, Andrews, Ron's, and Keith Morgan, who of course is our resident IT expert, as well as being one of the uh, Enterprise Mission Imaging Team members. And Keith has some very intriguing comparisons with ancient things here on Earth to talk about later tonight or this morning, whatever the case may be. So you click on my name under in, in Fast Links. That takes you down to my first item in Radio with Pictures. Um, we're going to lead tonight again with two items which are kind of positioned at the top of the news, which is the Webb Telescope, both what its current status is and where it is. So link number one. The Webb team, as you know, after they arrived on the station at the L2 point, which is now in a halo orbit around the L2 point, about a million miles away from Earth in the direction away from the sun, in an orbit that takes them about six months to make that one circuit, that one halo orbit of this mythical point in space called the L2 uh, balance point. What they're doing now uh, in the shadow of the sun shield, this five-layered Kevlar blanket that they deployed, which is about the size of a tennis court. And again, it's amazing that everything that they had to deploy, this Rube Goldberg incredible mechanical nightmare with pulleys and cables and sprockets and everything worked. So the telescope, which had to be unfolded, the main mirror had to be unfolded, just like the solar blanket. All of that worked, and they're now hiding in the shadow of this tennis court-sized shield of Kevlar, five layers, which prevents the sunlight, which is basically at 1 AU from the sun, because what's a million miles among friends and at a distance of 93 million miles from our closest star? And in that shadow, 
the instruments and the telescope and all the ancillary equipment is slowly cooling down to just a few degrees above absolute zero. Why are they cooling this telescope? Well, the James Webb Space Telescope, unlike Hubble, is an infrared-sensitive instrument. And since infrared is basically, in terms of some wavelengths, heat radiation, it's very bad if your detector is at room temperature because it will swamp with its own internal heat and infrared radiation any faint radiations you were trying to pick up from far, far beyond. So the answer is to passively cool in the shadow of a giant sun shield the size of a tennis court, uh, a telescope which is about uh, 20, 21, 22 feet across in terms of the primary mirror, which is composed of 18 separate sub-mirrors in the form of hexagons. So tonight's blog, which is what item number one is, is a report from the team, the web team, of how they've now got um, the 18 separate telescopes to where they're producing starlight. They're focused on one star. And of course, because the mirror, the primary mirror is made of 18 separate segments, they actually now have 18 separate images in various focus, um, out of focus, geometrically arrayed as a kind of a giant set of hexagons uh, of those 18 separate telescopes that are focused on the camera, one of many cameras in the spacecraft and the instrumentation that will ultimately be analyzing uh, the throughput, giving us amazing images in a variety of infrared wavelengths, and of course, looking at the uh, composition spectroscopically of the targets the telescope will eventually be aimed upon. So they're doing the alignment, and uh, if you want to read the details of how they're doing it, click on item number one. Item number two is a kind of a constant feature that accompanies number one. It's where is Webb, both physically in space as well as in terms of its instrumentation, uh, in terms of the uh, slow process of bringing all these mirrors into the same focus, lining them up, superimposing the images one over the other to within fractions of a wavelength of light, a process which is going to take from now till probably around July. So this is a long, elaborate, laborious process, and part of that process involves allowing the instrumentation to continue to cool down by means of passive radiation in the shadow of that sunshield to where it will reach a temperature of only a few degrees above absolute zero and maximum sensitivity to the infrared radiations which are going to be coming from a whole variety of interstellar, intergalactic, and cosmological sources across the vast infinite night of a universe which is uh, 3.7 uh, I'm, you know, billion plus years old. So, um, against that, I'm sorry, 13.7 billion. 
against that backdrop, um, let's return back to Earth. Item number three. This is uh, very interesting. This is a, a think piece written by a friend and a colleague, John Callaman, who I may have on the show in the next couple of weeks because he's written a very interesting um, article with references and diagrams and graphics asking the question, why might Putin's Russia want to invade Ukraine? Now, as you know, a couple of weeks ago, I had our uh, resident historian, Dr. Richard Spence, on, and we talked at great length about uh, the historical background of Ukraine, its close ties to Mother Russia, uh, the migrations of peoples, the vicissitudes of being part of various empires, including the Polish Empire and the Lithuanian Empire, and all of this background to why you know, Russia, i.e. Putin, is dealing with Ukraine the way he is. This is a very interesting take from a totally different point of view. This is kind of like an HD physics perspective. And what Kalaman is doing is analyzing in the sweep of Mayan, the uh, Mayan calendar, the various frequency waves of the physics that he is attuning to the permutations and resonances in the ancient Mayan calendar. And he analyzes the uh, relationship of Putin's Russia to Ukraine and this impending catastrophic war which could break out at any moment as we're on the brink of something which is so or, or could be so potentially destabilizing at this critical time in the physics. What's so interesting to me about this is that Kalaman and I have not talked. And uh, I'm going to call him up and ask him if he wants to come on and talk about his theory. But we both arrived at the same conclusion, which is it's not an accident that there is this major impending global conflagration triggered by another major land war in Europe, if it comes to pass, at exactly the same time that the physics is providing us a window of consciousness to make very different decisions. So then the question arises, is this impending war that Putin seems to be really spearheading, is it accidental in time or is it designed at some higher level perhaps not even consciously acted out by the players involved to distract us from this extraordinary window where the planet, where Earth can make some extraordinary high-level, hyper-dimensional decisions and choices. So you're going to want to read that with an idea that maybe there are things that are um, uh, modulating terrestrial history that are far beyond the relatively mundane and short-term geopolitical decisions of the various actors, including Vladimir Putin himself. So, as I said, um, um, I'm going to maybe talk to Kalaman this week and have him come on and talk in great detail about how he arrived at this very interesting uh, uh, set of conclusions that there could be something much bigger than just another geopolitical confrontation 
behind what's occurring or could be occurring in Eastern Europe in the next few days. Fingers crossed. Well, tonight we're going to be looking at the planet Mars, and we haven't looked at Mars for a very long time, so I want you to kind of look at item number four there in my section. This is an official uh, website. This is the Planetary Society, and it's their perspective on the Pioneer Plaque, which in their piece they title Science as a Universal Language. Uh, there's a backstory, and some people over the last several weeks, as we've been working this interstellar extraterrestrial communications story, starting with our broadcast to Oumuamua, and then graduating to um, the broadcast that we did a couple weeks ago from Stonehenge. And as you know, tomorrow afternoon, um, tomorrow morning, U.S. time, tomorrow afternoon, British time, uh, Maria Wheatley is once again going to be going into Stonehenge with the radios, and she's going to be transmitting about two minutes of a very carefully constructed message and she's going to be recording everything that happens uh, beginning several miles away from Stonehenge and occupying her time as she transits around the monument and then exits after um, a couple, three hours. We have a network of other participants set up uh, around the world, particularly here in the North American continent, which is you know thousands of miles away from Stonehenge, in the first go-round, we got some very intriguing answers on Michael Hill's radios, on Keith's radios outside Washington, D.C., on my radio, David Sarita's radio um, in Canada, in Western Canada. And so we're going to do this all again, except we've added Dennis Stone and one of Maria's friends in New York State, Upper New York State, uh, not far from a place called Balanced Rock. And so we're, we've got this network of receivers. Uh, Maria is going to transmit again and record, and the rest of us are merely recording to see if this ancient sacred site network resonates in response, and whoever is talking to us will respond to this new coded set of messages and will expand our awareness of who we're talking to and why they're answering. Well, with that as backdrop, as I was putting the show together tonight vis-a-vis -vis Mars, I kind of realized that there's a there's a kind of an elegant, um, almost uh, karmic reason why I find myself involved in these ET communications experiments. And it goes way back to the creation of the Pioneer Plaque in 1971. So... Suffice to say, and you can read the details, particularly in item number five, which is the story of uh, my association with the creation of the Pioneer Plaque with a colleague and a friend named Eric Burgess, who was one of the co-founders of the British Interplanetary Society. Um, there's a story there, a backstory, which I will not go through because we don't have a lot of time and you can read it for yourself. But the background, the bottom line is that there is this elegant connection between me doing this show, heading the Enterprise mission, the research uh, arm of what we're doing here, 
and the connection to extraterrestrial communications, which have now culminated in radio transmissions to Oumuamua, and then further radio transmissions from Stonehenge uh, in England. And apparently, uh, for those who are interested in kind of karmic closing of the circle, it began with uh, Eric and my collaboration with Carl Sagan on the generation of humankind's first modern interstellar message in the form of a plaque that was sent on a NASA spacecraft in 1972 on a one-way journey past Jupiter into the interstellar void, and it's still out there. Both spacecraft, Pioneer 10 and Pioneer 11, which both carried plaques, and then their subsequent descendants, the Voyagers, and then the New Horizons. In other words, what we did is we managed to create a kind of a cottage interstellar communications industry, not in the form of radio waves, but in the form of physical objects, spacecraft that would depart the solar system, never to return, carrying like cosmic bottles these messages that we conceived uh, to send into interstellar space so that someday if these spacecraft are intercepted, are detected, are picked up, are, are plucked out of space-time by either ourselves, our dim, dim, dim descendants when we develop interstellar capabilities and or some other extraterrestrial civilization that's kind of wandering the star halls of the galaxy thousands of years from now, if they come across these artifacts, these spacecraft, on them are a series of messages sent by human beings, by humanity, into the interstellar void to basically announce, we are here, and this is what we're about, and this is who we are. And Eric and I were the uh, progenitors of a fleet of these spacecraft, which are now scurrying across the interstellar night, carrying a variety of different media and different messages. And it all began with Pioneer 10. And the story of that genesis is told in item number five, which takes us to item number six. Because I think it was that background, the idea of looking at coding of messages and how do you speak to beings that you will maybe never meet, that you don't share a common language with, certainly not Esperanto or English or Arabic or Russian or any other of our contemporary languages. How would you talk across space and time to total strangers that you may be genetically related to, but in terms of culture, in terms of a common identifiable language, there is alien to you as the desert winds of Mars are alien currently to humanity on Earth. So in, um, in the 1980s, early 80s, um, I began, as you know, if you've read The Monuments of Mars, taking kind of seriously some images that were taken of a northern Martian desert called Sidonia. And with some other colleagues like Errol Torin and Keith Morgan and some other people, we began 
decoding what could only be described as an elegant mathematical message laid out upon the landscape of Mars in the universal language of mathematics and geometry. And our decoding of that message is there itemized in number six in my section of Radio with Pictures tonight. So when I kind of look back and answer to some of these people who've been asking me an email, why are you suddenly so obsessed with talking to aliens? It's because it looks like in my professional career, going back many decades to the genesis of the Pioneer plaque on Pioneer, that I've been involved in doing this um, one way or another for many, many years. So it's kind of elegant that it all should come together in terms of um, sending ET messages from one ancient monument on Earth, i.e. Stonehenge. And in a few weeks, we're going to be able to transmit uh, another set of messages from the Great Pyramid at Giza itself. As we get closer, we'll describe the background to that remarkable opportunity. Because whether you're aware of it or not, there is an actual mathematical connection which is described in great detail in the Monuments of Mars, which is my uh, uh, kind of tell-all book on the story of the Mars investigation, the independent Mars investigation, and then the Enterprise mission genesis and the addition of various team members and what we've figured out and what we haven't figured out in terms of these ongoing NASA missions where they accumulate a lot of data and they make it public, but they don't say anything about the presence on Mars of ancient extraterrestrial intelligent artifacts. It's kind of like that subject is taboo. But they do, as you'll hear as we go through the morning, seem to respond to outside discoveries. And in fact, as part of the Perseverance mission, as we would find things over the last year, they appear to have responded and taken additional data almost for our benefit, but without comment, then they posted it. And then in the weeks following, we would take that data, we would process it, we would analyze it, we would utilize it, we would put it into the you know, discussion among ourselves, and we would report back on this show in subsequent weeks the results of the analysis of data that we literally would not have had unless the JPL crew running Perseverance quietly in the background simply followed through and did more observations to fulfill what our analysis was indicating. It's a very strange, uh, almost, um, well, I, I don't know how to describe the relationship. It's, um, it's kind of unique. Okay, we're coming down to the bottom of the hour. When we come back, I'm going to introduce uh, our team members tonight as we kind of go through for the benefit of many of you who have not been following the Perseverance closely, the rather amazing, astonishing, historic confirmations of our overall extraterrestrial model, which is that some people at some time Sim seem to have lived on the surface of the planet Mars 
and in the most bizarre fashion, they appear to have been related to us. And our job is, in fact, to try to figure out who they were and when they finally came here and how they are related to the current group of humans living and warring and competing on planet Earth itself. Tonight, Perseverance, one year after. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. As you continue to work on yourself, the tribe comes forward. They'll come right to your door. So just keep doing the work and it'll come together. Yep, as you increase your frequency, then you become more mature in your manifestation abilities. And your other higher senses and gifts come online and then you have more power to make your world different and better and how you want it. And so that's why working on yourself is so important because then you're going to create the reality that you want rather than get sucked into the dystopia that's being created by the negative or shadow side. We're becoming uh, Renaissance men and women where we have multiple skill sets and we can dance from science into art and we can use both sides of our hemispheres and we can realize how much we have to really offer and uh, grow into. And this is what's happening now. This is where we're headed into a really beautiful place. So we can rejoice in that despite the fear, despite what it looks like on the outside. This is how disease transforms. The mess in the chaos is necessary in order to see what you have before you so you can clean it up and just make decisions to change your reality. If you don't see it, how do you know it's there to even be changed? Or if you ignore it, right? Then how can you make the differences? You can't. So the mess is before us, accept our mess, and now know that that's part of empowerment to be able to see and to be able to transform it. Hi, this is Amanda Vollmer, and I was on the other side of the news and I really enjoy my time discussing deeper topics and really getting to the heart of truth and the things that matter in this world and what we are doing and why we're here and, and what we're heading toward. I really recommend listening in and, and learning, uh, expanding your awareness and your knowledge. It's important and these are the times to do it and we're being asked to pay attention and to challenge ourselves and uh, 
think beyond beyond the box. back everyone on this Saturday night February 19th it was uh, one year and one day yesterday in fact yesterday afternoon that Perseverance landed in this very extraordinary place on Mars called Jezero Crater and right out of the box it did some amazing things it transformed the terrestrial conservation. It threw NASA into a veritable tizzy fit. It completely discombobulated for weeks the flagship of NASA television to where I kind of started recording everything because none of the titles matched the times because what they did is they took out planned press conferences and left huge holes in the schedule that they didn't repair for weeks all because of the first image that was transmitted from the spacecraft. So if you go back to the other side of midnight, okay, and click on uh, uh, the banner, and that will take you to the guest page, and under there you'll see fastenings to items. Click on my items. Go down and look at number seven. Because for decades... Since the 1970s, we've been told that NASA is literally the red planet. And they've shown us endless photographs, images from Viking and uh, Spirit and Opportunity and uh, other spacecraft that we've landed, that the reddish skies of Mars are kind of russet or salmon or kind of a greenish puke color but it certainly doesn't look like anything we think of in terms of a habitable world of another smaller Earth until in the Martian afternoon of the 18th of February of 2021 as the Perseverance spacecraft touched down and opened its eyes and took its first color wide-angle panorama view with what were called the hazard cams. There, if you look at number seven and click on it, and it gets very large, there was a gorgeous, gorgeous afternoon on Mars, and the sky was a gorgeous blue. And it completely as my grandmother would have said, put the cat among the pigeons because NASA wasn't the same in terms of its planned programming, press conferences, all of that stuff for weeks. So what is so discombobulating about this image? What was so absolutely outrageous about this first beautiful live, well, 20 minutes late because it took that long to get the signal back from Mars at the speed of light, of a color panorama of the Martian landscape. 
Well, the answer was the color of the sky. Because in this unadulterated, unabridged, uncensored, live shot, 20 minutes late, from Mars, the color picture showed the lie to everything that NASA has been saying about Mars and the color of the sky and the ground and the dust in the air and the dust storms and all of this for the last, you know, almost 50 years, since the 1970s, since the first Viking shots that had to be corrected, that changed from, as Carl Sagan said that afternoon when Viking landed, oh, it looks like an Arizona desert. And suddenly a technician goes running around turning all the monitors to where the colors of Mars turn almost blood red. And the reddish Mars in various guises and tints and hues have been that way ever since until this stunning afternoon a year and a day ago tonight when suddenly in a live unexpurgated transmission the real skies of Mars shone through and they were blue. Now the reason this is important is item number eight. If you click on item number eight, because we've been told now ever since uh, Mariner 4 flew by Mars in the um, summer of 1965 that Mars as an incredibly thin atmosphere, something like one one one-hundredth of the atmosphere of Earth, which means that if you were to stand on Mars, according to all the uh, uh, pre-landing paintings by Chesley Bonstell and others, the sky should be pitch black and not even a hint of blue except maybe very close to the horizon. In other words, the Martian atmosphere, we have been told, since the 1970s, since the 1960s actually, is so thin that the closest equivalent is the atmosphere of the Earth above 100,000 feet. So take a look at number eight. This is a comparison. Click on it. It gets big. On the left is an actual photograph taken by a, 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 a German skydiver who, sponsored by Red Bull, Uh, basically jumped out of a sealed capsule at about 120,000 feet and free fell to a low altitude, you know, like 20,000 feet above the Earth before he popped his parachute. So this is kind of a duplication of a scientific experiment by a guy named Kittinger uh, in the 1960s, late 1960s, who free fell from over 100,000 feet. Look at the horizon. The camera, which is an automatic camera, is taking a picture of the Earth. That's the curved bluish band in the far distance. And above that band is black. And below that band is the Earth, is life, as uh, Bill Shatner said. And that bluish band is the atmosphere where you can breathe, which is well, well, well below the altitude at which this skydiver is poised to make his historic jump. On the right is that color view from the first Hascam image from the surface of Mars after Percy landed. Look at how bright the sky is. Look at how blue over on the right 
the sky is. But we're told that the atmosphere that we're looking through is the equivalent density of 100,000 feet above the Earth. Now again, take a look at the left-hand picture. That's a photograph taken 100,000 feet plus above the Earth. Look at the right-hand picture. That's a picture taken on Mars, which is obviously not the same as the picture on the left. The photographs don't lie. The data doesn't lie. You can't build an atmosphere where there is no atmosphere. You can't create scattering and molecular scattering from carbon dioxide or nitrogen or oxygen because all molecules are basically about the same size. So irrespective of the composition of the Martian atmosphere, if it's only the atmosphere we're looking at, it should be blue. And the brightness of the blue is dependent on the density. So very, very faint atmosphere, thin, very, very, very pale blue, black. Very high density atmosphere, very bright and very colorful and blue. So you look at those two pictures, what is wrong with this comparison? In other words, what is wrong with the planet Mars as NASA has been portraying it for over the last 50 years? Something is radically wrong, and it's not the photographs. It's their interpretation by our friendly local neighborhood space agency. Okay, now fast forward the film. That's the first shot and the first comparison of the unexpurgated version of Percy, which threw NASA into a tizzy, as recorded by NASA television and canceled press conferences and a whole bunch of very amateurish activities by an agency which should be very polished and professional. And when they came to trying to recoup from their shock and surprise, they were not very professional for week upon week upon week. I want to fast forward the film now to tonight. And I want to bring on Ron Gerbrun, who is our resident generalist, because Ron, for the last year, has been keeping close track of all the imagery that Perseverance has been publishing. And what he's going to do is kind of give you a thumbnail sketch of the process of taking pictures with this incredible robot on Mars and how they wind up on the website of JPL and ultimately in your own computers if you download them. And then he's got something really strange to show you, which is frankly, I don't have an explanation for what you're, gonna, you're going to see and what he's going to talk about, and we don't either. And frankly, neither, it seems, does NASA. So without further ado, Ron, why don't you come on and talk about the current mystery on February 19th, 2022, a year plus one day after Percy landed on Mars, it's handed us another major, fascinating enigma. Talk about it. Okay. Hello, everyone. Yeah, no, hi, I'm here. Uh, the uh, If you will scroll down to number six in my section. Okay, it's easier if you actually click on Fast Links, which is up under the banner on the guest page. Click on Ron. That yeah, well, that's you. what I meant. And what number are we going to? Six. Number six. It Got happened. it. Yeah, there's so many pictures up tonight that I told Keith to put them in whatever order 
seem best to him, so they're not listed. Anyway, uh, it's a comparison of two unusual objects on the surface of Mars, taken by um, the rover, taken by Percy. On the left, we have, I don't know what, that's been there obviously quite a while and is quite dusty. On the right, we have the mystery object that Richard's referring to, which is just from like two days ago, taken like two days ago. Ron, did you go away? Uh, oh, it's one of those things where if we can go to the moon, why can't we have a simple Skype call? <laughs> I'm getting him back. Okay. Here's a message. Thank you. Come on, Ron. Okay. Uh, every time we get to something interesting on the show, this has been a pattern going back many, many years since our economy into doing this back in 2015. Bizarre things happen electronically. And obviously someone uh, is interfering, or it could just be a random glitch. There's no way to know. But statistically, the glitches happen too often. Um, the one thing I... Interesting points. No, I'm back. I'm oh, back. there you are. Keith was right on top of it. Yeah, that's, I seem to disappear whenever something interesting comes up. But I don't know. I have the image numbers you know, right on the top if you look at the larger versions of those two images paired together there and uh, wherever that thing is it's not too far from where Perseverance is now because they've been doubling back on their tracks but they're not following the exact same path uh, at least not according to them did he disappear again yes he did oh this is nuts <laughs> um, actually um, I kind of this is hope... getting controversial. This is kind of fun. Yeah. Go ahead. Hello. Yeah. It's just, anyway, I uh, I think that it's something that uh, they will probably get a ticket for littering from the Martian um, traffic cops because it's uh, I think it's part of the rover, it's the one on the right. Uh, that's the new object, but I'm not sure. It does seem to be similar to something connected with their sampling. But that doesn't look like a sample container. It looks like part of the mechanism that stuffs the stuff in there, right? Well, the thing that's so bizarre is that, you know, every time Percy has hiccuped over the last year, uh, you know, it dropped what they called the belly pan, which was necessary to unveil the helicopter before they could lower it to the surface because they, have, uh, they had it kind of glued up under the body of uh, Perseverance and when they landed with all the retro rockets kicking up the sand and dust and rocks, they had to protect the delicate helicopter from, you know, debris. Sure. And so they had this metal, aluminized, custom-made uh, form plate, which actually was more like a very rectangular box with crinkles and, you know, wedges and all kinds of filigree. And they would they released that with uh, um, you know explosive bolts and then they drove away from it and you could see it lying there obviously something artificial clearly not part of the Martian landscape and it was part of the rover and they held a press conference and they put out a press release and they had pictures with arrows and circles and you know there was a big fanfare you know this was successful and then when they deployed other equipment they would go through an elaborate press release uh, with images uh, kind of a narrative where they would describe what they were doing. 
This object a couple days ago on Saul 346, I think, thereabouts, it just suddenly appeared on the landscape in one of the pictures, and there's been zero press release, no press conference, no discussion, no explanation. If something fell off the rover, given that they're kind of accountable to the American taxpayer, they're kind of obligated uh, if, if for no other reason the press will ask the, you know, embarrassing questions. So they would... Sure, it's a $200,000 coffee pot. Exactly. So you'd yeah. expect them, if it was from Percy, to say it's a, it's a you know, a such and such framus. Nothing. Hmm. Crickets. Deafening silence. And it's obviously artificial. It's... The, the photograph itself is kind of fuzzy. You know, it's amazing. We send you know, a two-plus-billion-dollar spacecraft, and it takes fuzzy pictures. Um, even when there's nothing unusual in the image, the pictures are kind of fuzzy. But in this That's case... A, that it's a 600% enlargement, just in case anybody wants Well, it, that means it's relatively small, and the only thing I could think of is it's part of the core tube uh, sample extraction and archiving system that they're you know, using to store in these little titanium cylinders pieces of rock for a future uh, robotic mission to go in the next, you know, five years or so and basically collect and then send back to Earth. But they're not saying anything. And if something, you know, when when they had a problem a couple of weeks ago where they were doing a drilling and the drilling got stuck, you know, rocks got stuck in the, more of the of the core tube drill they did close-up imagery they did a press conference they put out a press release they described how they were turning it upside down and shaking it to try to get rid of the debris in other words they over explained something that was kind of mundane in this case this obviously mechanical cylindrical symmetrical object appears in a photograph and zero as i said crickets no explanation, no comment, no nothing, which, which you know, is really bizarre. Now, you had a personal experience recently in the last couple of days with one of your contacts who kind of has a one foot in the black world, better known as the intelligence community. Describe what he said when you described this to him. Well, what I got was some unexpected epic praise. Oh, that's terrific. That ought to might maybe you should have a press conference. It was just an email, but the reaction was funny because usually I get a point, you know, when it's something something like this. So uh, maybe it's a foobar. I, I'm I'm thinking seriously that NASA literally. It sounds bizarre, but I'm thinking that literally, literally they missed it. You know, like the uh, the picture process from. Oop, did he go away again? Keith? Yeah, stand back. He's coming oh, back. <laughs> Boy, talk about I'm starting to see a pattern here. <laughs> okay. The, uh, Keith's, Keith's quick on the trigger tonight. Uh, no, the, uh, yeah, uh, the normal process, it only takes a couple of hours. Every night that I look, I'm downloading images that from the timestamp on them, they just took them a few hours before. I mean, I find that marvelous 
that's that's a wonderful achievement that it's they automated the process of tra- of bringing the pictures back from Mars, sticking them on the website just like that. And I think maybe occasionally because it's a mundane a look mundane enough looking picture. There's nothing other than this, which is in the middle of the frame, and it, and Richard's right, it's fairly small. Um, the uh, to catch your eye. Uh, so even if there was somebody monitoring it for mysterious, okay. Let me let me interrupt here. Um, Andrew, Andrew, are 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 you with us? Yes. Okay. This is Andrew Curry. He's our resident artist. Actually, he's a lot more. Uh, he's hilarious. He he, he does he does this. he does storyboards for movies. He does storyboards for commercials. He's had commercials Hello? in the Super Bowl. Oh. Yeah, Ron. Uh, because Andrew, oh. do you have new data on this? Well, I have um, two comments to make. I mean, I'm kind of with you guys. I think it's come from the rover, sort of as it's been, you know, rolling around. But there was that Richard. What was that thing called that covered the parachute when the uh, Perseverance came down and all the bolts went f- exploding out and all the debris went flying in the air? Could that possibly be something that they just came across from that? No, no, no. The odds would be infinitesimal. You'd find something that tiny, you know, that when when they actually, you know, decelerated into the atmosphere a year ago, um, far to the west of where we are, right. is, is where that material, you know, the explosive bolts released the parachute and all that, right. and the idea that they would make it down to where you could literally wander by uh, on your way back north, uh, one of these things is just. I mean, the odds are infinitesimal. Right. Well, here's the other one, and this is a <laughs> conspiracy theory, of course. But when uh, you guys referenced it, I immediately got an image from um, the Truman Show <laughs> when a certain oh, light. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Remember the lights in the sky that simulated the stars? Yeah. And Truman is going on his front walk, and something falls out of the ceiling. He doesn't know he's in an artificial world. Yeah. But in this dome, the object falls and lands just a couple of feet from him. And, of course, he's terrified momentarily because it could have hit him and killed him. And then the camera zooms in close, and it's projector, which is marked Sirius. And nine Canis in, in um, parentheses. Well, Sirius is the oh. brightest star in Canis Major. Exactly. So, so, yeah. so I, I mean, this is really weird. So, Ron, go back to describing the yeah. chain of how images get now in this modern era of the 21st century from a rover on Mars to Earth and to individual home computer screens. Because unlike the old days, when you had a whole bunch of human beings involved in every step of the process, it's all now AI and robots. It's like, look, Ma, no hands. So you're right. This could have been missed because these guys don't have the time to look through literally hundreds of images that are coming down every day. And this got posted maybe automatically, or maybe our friends inside arranged for it to be posted. So we would comment tonight about the latest weirdness from Perseverance on Mars. I I think it's more that. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they would have posted the image anyway. You know, there is nothing that destroys any paradigms from the original image, uh, unless this is indeed something Martian, and we all kind of agree it's pretty terrestrial. 
But um, it, uh, I mean, if it's something important, you would think that that part wouldn't work on the rover anymore, and they run self-checks constantly, so you'd think they'd figure that out. But, yeah, the process... And they'd have to announce it and hold a press conference and be accountable. I mean, there's a whole elaborate set of procedures so that things don't fail. Remember, NASA's mantra is no single point failure. Yeah, so it wouldn't be the end of the world if their sample uh, collecting uh, equipment was broken, but uh, it probably isn't. But... In any case, yeah, Richard's right. The, the stuff comes down to JPL. I mean, I don't know all the equipment on li- in, in the line there, and it's already uh, uh, pretty much set up. I mean, I think I saw that they download it pretty much in the formats that we see. Um, the uh, it, It's already gotten past that stage of being a, just a stream of binary signals um, by it gets to that, when it gets to that point. And they don't trim it. Anybody who downloads pictures from the raw image website to enjoy the fact that you're seeing something that was just photographed on Mars a few hours ago, uh, you'll notice there are these black strips that are on either side of the image itself. You know, the website background is black, so you don't see it unless you download the image. But there's like these trim strips, uh, like the, what do they call them, bars on a TV screen uh, for the for aspect ratio. They're not for that. I think it's just because there are slight variations in the ultimate size of the images. Maybe it has something to do with the camera. And um, they normally they'd trim that. If there were people in the line, that's one of the things they obviously used to do because all the images would be the exact number it said. And that's not the case with the Percy stuff, and it hasn't been from day one. It's uh, They're not the same they may say that it's 1600 by 12 uh, as image size. Go ahead and download one and look at it. It's not. It's a few pixels off this way or that. And so you, I, I advise anyone who wants to download images and process them in their own way, uh, trim that stuff off first because it gets in the way of the image enhancement. But I don't think it was a sinister intent either. I think it's just there's, uh, this stuff's going up automatically. So I guess we will find out eventually, and certainly now somebody will notice. I mean, I, I care more about the picture. <laughs> yes, I, I think after tonight someone is going to write a press release and try to explain this somehow. Hey, guys, hold it there. We're at the uh, top of the hour. i blame you, Richard. It's your fault, Richard. Of, of course. Blame of course, it on you. Of course, though. They always blame it on me, okay? Okay, we are at the top of the hour. You're on Saturday night, February 19th, a day and a year after Perseverance landed at this extraordinary location on Mars, Jezero Crater. And if you haven't been following this story, you ain't heard nothing yet, because Jezero, of all, you know, we can kind of bring up uh, Casablanca, of all the gin joints in all the world, they couldn't have landed in a more interesting place if they wanted to present us with the mysteries of the ancient history of Mars. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.